We believe that the purpose of business is to create economic, social, and spiritual capital. It's not just to maximize shareholder value, but it's to be a catalyst for flourishing. Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name's Jeff Thomas, and we've got uh, one of the co-hosts with us, Jeff Rutt. Say hello to the people, Jeff. Hey, everybody. And uh, we've got Pete Oaks with us, a very special treat. Uh, Pete is the founder and chairman of Capital Three, which is an impact investment company with investments in the U.S. and Central America based from Valley. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. Tell me the city you're from. Valley Center, Kansas. Okay. And he is from Valley Center, Kansas. So welcome to the program, Pete. Jeff and Jeff, great to be here. Well, Jeff, uh, you know how we start this. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, Pete, tell us about the early years, what it was like for uh, Pete Oaks, just uh, formidable years, both uh, spiritually and otherwise. What was it like in the household and you know, growing up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I was blessed beyond measure in the house that I was raised in. I'm a Kansas farm kid, so my dad was a farmer, mom was a school teacher, Christian home, hardworking home. Um, my parents loved me a lot. They tried to make a musician out of me. Uh, they gave me violin lessons, piano lessons, trombone lessons. None of that stuck. Uh, stuck. Um, but it was it was a great life. They taught me generosity. While they weren't wealthy folks, they were. They were very generous. A quick story, when I was about seven or eight years old, I was out in the shop working, and it was a few days before Christmas, and um, I went over in the corner to get some wood and stuff that I needed. Dad had a pile of stuff he let me in. I pulled back the blanket, and there was a brand new, big, red radio flower, radio flyer wagon with a box of apples in it. And I go, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this for Christmas. This is perfect. Christmas Eve showed up. We had dinner. Dad said, hey, hey, Pete, I need your help. And he took me outside. We went to the shop, and he went over to the corner where the blanket was because I'd put it all back really nice and neat. And he yanked the blanket off, and I thought, this is strange. He's, he's not going to give this to me early. He says, help me load this in the car. Long story short, we put it in the station wagon, drove across to the other side of town, as it were. Um, a small little house, uh, went up to the front door, and... I will tell you, I was absolutely distraught as I was riding in the car thinking, I'm not going to get this wagon. This isn't for me. And when we opened that door and dad pulled that wagon in, there were seven kids in that house and they went crazy. And of course, the box of apples was in there. And it was the first time I really understood generosity, I think. I think it was probably one of the best lessons my dad could have given me. So anyway, I uh, stayed in Washington uh, and went uh, uh, junior high school, high school, had a great experience there, and then went on to Kansas University for college. Wow. So to talk about you know, coming to Christ. What what was your faith journey like and a little bit about your school years? Yes. So I came to Christ at 12 at a church camp, a very kind of emotional experience for me. And I would say I did the best I could to follow Christ during high school. My high school was a, you know, Washington, Kansas is about 4,000 people. So it wasn't a large high school. And I was, there was just a handful of us as Christians in there. 
Fellowship of Christian Athletes was there, and that was very powerful. Okay. okay. So that's awesome. That had a big influence on me. And I'd say I would try to be a good kid, but I really didn't. I would say I accepted Christ as Savior at 12. I really came to understand who he was as Lord my freshman year in college. Okay. And where was that? At University of Kansas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. About those years. Well, you know, I started out in pre-med and uh, my junior year, I decided to take a business class to figure out how I was going to manage all the money I was going to make as an orthodontist. And uh, about uh, about two weeks into this class, I'm going, uh, gosh, I am not a, I'm not a dentist. Uh, I'm a business guy. And besides, who would want these farmer hands in your mouth anyway? <laughs> and so, <laughs> literally, uh, within two weeks, I just, God just made it very clear because I just hate biology and all this stuff. So I switched to business and spent the last year and a half taking like 22 hours uh, a semester to get out of there. I will, I will tell you, Jeff, that uh, my freshman year, uh, I got to know a group of um, Christians. They weren't Campus Crusade, but they were very much like Campus Crusade. And they'd come on again. And I saw in them a, a life that I wanted. And I thought wow. they, they truly, genuinely loved people and cared for people in a very special way. And for the first time, I remember I'd always grown up on the King James Bible. And these people gave me a New International Version Bible. And I went through the New Testament in like two days. I didn't um, last. I was just enthralled with, it, with God's Word. And so college was a meaningful experience for me. Wow, that's awesome. It was uh, mind-blowing to see that new translation. And uh, that's, that's awesome. It's, that was such a gift to have that clear direction in the first two weeks rather than, you know, six years later. So talk about early career. Yes. Yeah, so I, after college. So I graduated in 1974, and that was a recession year. Things weren't all that great. Uh, fortunately, I had a brother-in-law who had worked for a family bank in Wichita, Kansas, and I'd come down. Uh, my sister was a few years older than I was, and they lived in Wichita, so I'd drive from Lawrence to Wichita and visit with them. I got to know the owner of that bank, and he really liked me. So my junior year, he offered me a job. So when I graduated uh, as a senior, I got in the commercial banking business in Wichita, Kansas. It was uh, a family-owned banking. They owned uh, three banks. I worked in one of them. It was about a $70, $80 million bank. And I did that for the next uh, eight years. And that was a very formative time in my life. I, I truly learned business uh, in that banking business. Yeah. 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 You get to see it from the inside out. A lot of agriculture in that area or what, what type of businesses? Yes. So Wichita is really known for aircraft, Learjet, Beechcraft, uh, Cessna, we're all here. Uh, Boeing has a big plant here and they build plants, parts of planes here. Eggs big, oil's big, and we have some light manufacturing primarily re related to aircraft. Mm. Yeah. So uh, there was a, there, you, you met someone somewhere along the line here. Uh, when, when did you meet your lovely wife? Yes, so I graduated college and came to to Wichita. I had a college roommate who had gone full-time in young life and actually lived in town, and he talked me into being a volunteer leader in young life. So 
I was a young business guy and, uh, you know, they do a lot of contact work in young life. And I, back then we wore coats and ties and suits and whatever. And um, it was always interesting because I always liked going to the high schools in a suit and tie. These guys thought I was a narc or something, you know, somebody there to bust them on drugs. And once they got to know me and figured out I wasn't quite that crazy guy. Uh, so anyway, uh, my wife happened to be a fellow Young Life volunteer leader. And she and I got the dating a year, about a year after I had been here. And so we've actually been volunteers in Young Life. I hate to tell you this for 47 years. Wow. 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 That's amazing. So I want to let Jeff, the other Jeff, take it from there. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, you know, we, we usually get to the practical tip at the end, but I think you already gave us one. So if uh, you're a single uh, a business person uh, looking for a godly spouse, a volunteer for Young Life, there, there's a plug. I mean, what, what that advertisement do you need? Well, well, that and the the red wagon with the with the the the, the uh, radio flyer with the box of apples. I mean, that that's talk about a a story with a picture. I mean, everybody can envision that radio. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was on body. Gift yourself, and then being able to the joy of being able to give that, instill that for life. That's. I mean, we could. That's a mic drop story right there. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So. So, but, but this is, you're still in your uh, 20s at this point, right? You you worked at the bank, what, like six or eight years, eight years? I spent eight years in the banking business. So I started at 22 and left at 30. One of the, one of the major things, probably one of the most important things, most significant things I've done in my life is I wrote, a, I read a book that talked about writing a personal plan and finding a mentor. And I did this at 25. So I did a little research in town and I kept asking everybody who are the one or two best Christian business guys in town and two names kept coming up so I went to these uh, both these guys and took them to lunch and asked them if they'd mentor me both of them agreed and I will tell you one of those men walked with me every month for 47 years oh my gosh he passed away six months ago the other walked with me every quarter for almost 45 years and the, the impact those two men had on my life was amazing. I will tell you, 10 years ago, one was moving from his house to a retirement home. And uh, we were having lunch, and he had this little plastic box. It was about five and a half by eight inches big. He shoved it across the table to me, and he said, um, Pete, here is your life. Every time we met, he had a Franklin planner. You'll probably remember what they had. And every time we were together, he was jotting a note down in a Franklin planner. And he kept every one of those pages for 40, for 37 years. And I opened that up and began to flip through those pages and I just began to weep. We prayed about starting my business. We prayed about kids. We, he chastised me on gaining too much weight. He, it was incredible. And I wouldn't do it for myself, but he did it for me. What a gift. What a gift. I mean, of the time, but then also to have the foresight to save all that. I mean, that he did that intentionally. He did that intentionally. Wow. What? Oh, man. Boys, that's another gem right there. Go find a mentor. And, you know, and you're probably never too old to get one. 
right? You don't have to be 25. No, no. Yep. I actually think you should have three mentors. You should have older mentors. You should have peer mentors and need a couple of younger guys. I think, I think I've heard of that model in the Bible before. <laughs> Have I? What, what am I? Uh, where, where is my dad uh, uh, come from? You know, what is it? Peter, you know, you need a Barnabas. And uh, what's the last one? Oh, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And uh, maybe one more. What's, yeah, I can't remember. Paul, Barnabas, and there's there another one who it, it was the, uh, the be mentored, be menteed, and have a peer, you know? So, yeah. Well, very good. Okay. So, what kind of business did you start? What got you out of the banking business? I started a little investment banking company, and we would buy and sell. We would be the middleman between uh, privately held companies. So, we, uh, at the age of 29, I started that business. I went from working an, a job that was nine to five to a job that went from five to nine. And I took a 75% pay cap. I did that for a couple of years. I was making about $35,000 a year when I made that switch. And I went down to 10 and we did that for two or three years. My wife came to me and said, Pete, time out. You need to go get a real job. And so we had a discussion. My problem was that I had been, I was literally working seven days a week, probably 10 hours a day to try to get this thing off the ground. And I had taken this all on myself. I think the the amount of faith that I was putting into this business wasn't very much. So I agreed with my wife that I'd only work a half a day on Saturday and I wouldn't work at all on Sunday. And I'd spend that time with my my family. I will tell you within about 30 days, our business just took off. I mean, it just became almost more business than I could handle. And here was the moral of the story. I was violating the Sabbath. When I started trusting God, uh, he did, he, he provided for me. I think it was just plain and simple. I started honoring God. I started honoring my wife and started loving my kids. And if you want to be successful in life, you start with those three loves first. I mean, what hits me about that is, you know, the first thing that pops into my brain, of course, is Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday and how much more profitable they are than anybody else that's open on Sunday. And I don't know that that can be explained by human standards. And then the other one is we've had Terry Luber on who talked about just turning himself out completely. And once he made a, for him, a 40 hour week was a just impossible. Even when he talks about today, he's like, I don't understand. Cause that's just not, was not his MO. And he said, once he committed to that, everything took off. It, it's just, anyway, some of these things are just not what the business school teaches. Yeah. God's economy is not our economy. But I don't know that I know anybody that started an investment bank from scratch. Okay. Most people don't know, okay, you're in the banking business. Maybe you go to JP Morgan and, you know, get into the banking business. You literally just quit the bank and you're trying to do deals. Like when you're trying to put deals together in Wichita, what is happening here? Give us a picture. So, you know, there were smaller deals. Probably, oh, we sold a couple of them that were Five, six, seven hundred thousand total price. We tried to target the middle market, you know, in that two, three, four, five million range. Luckily, I was being in the banking business. I had I had established lots of great business contacts, and I was had some degree of trust, and so I leveraged that. Was able to do that, and uh, oh boy, it was uh, it was 
I like the deal business, but it's feast or famine. Yeah. Here, there is no kind of. So how many years did you do that before you kind of became a shareholder in maybe one of these portfolio companies? I'm sure there's a story where that transition happened. How long did you just do, put the deals together? Yeah. Started at 30. At the age of 39, yeah. uh, we had we'd brokered a deal. It was a bank, actually. And the guy that we sold it to got the bank in trouble. And about a year later, the bank, we were buyer representation only. So we would line up the financing, do the due diligence, help you do the, the deal. Yeah. So the bank that we had helped him uh, finance the thing with called me and said, hey, this guy's got it in trouble. Uh, you need to come in there and help us out. So we went in and for little, literally taking over the debt, we bought this bank. Now, this guy had really messed this bank up in about a year. And so I got in there and was suing people, repossessing assets, doing everything I could. And one of my customers countersued me. Now, I had bought the stock from, I'd assumed the stock from this other fellow. And consequently, I had inherited all his liabilities. Well, he had violated a lending practice. And uh, the guy that sued me, I went to my attorney and my attorney said, you know, you're, you're done. You will lose this. I said, no, let's fight it out. We started depositions. Five days into depositions, we were nowhere. I was reading in my quiet time on Friday morning. Uh, Proverbs 6 actually says, the Oaks translation of that says, if you've gotten yourself in a jam, go humble yourself and beg to get out of the jam. So at the end of depositions on Friday, I went to the man suing me. I knew him vaguely. I said, Lynn, I need to talk to you about this lawsuit. His attorney was standing there and gave his permission. So I showed up at his office two o'clock Sunday afternoon to talk about the lawsuit. Uh, he came in after a little bit and was kind of grumpy and said, well, what do you want? So I get up out of my desk, out of my chair, and I go over and I get down on my knees in front of his desk. And I said, Lynn, um, I'm a Christian. And I was reading in my quiet time on Friday morning that if you've gotten yourself in a jam, go humble yourself and beg to get out of the jam. If this lawsuit's got me in a jam, I will go bankrupt. And I'm begging you to let me out of this lawsuit. As I finished, he began to weep almost uncontrollably. And he said, Pete, I became a Christian 30 days ago. And I had, I knew this was wrong, but I didn't know how to get out of the lawsuit. And in five minutes, we had the lawsuit settled. I think for the first time, guys, at the age of 40, I understood that God's word. See, I'd bifurcated my life 40 years. I had my business life and I had my Christian life. And all of a sudden, when I, that lesson right there changed my life. So as I began to really get into God's word, the next thing I came to understand is that difference between ownership and stewardship. I'd never heard that before. But as I got really got into God's word and I started, my quiet times weren't very good, except when we were in this lawsuit. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, consi- you know consider pure joy when you encounter trials. It's amazing how I've grown spiritually in the trials. And what God's shown me. And one of those things was this whole concept of stewardship. And it was, it was a very powerful thing. Did that transform your quiet time? Yes. So what I did was we had a little back, even then we had a, a framework for how we do business. And we believe that the purpose of business is to create economic, social, and spiritual capitalists, not just to maximize shareholder value but it's to be a catalyst for flourishing. And if you're going to flourish, you need three things, according to Genesis 2, 15 through 18. You need a job, you need friends, and you need Jesus. 
I put man in the garden to work. It's not good to be alone. And by the way, don't eat of the fruit of that tree over there. Those are the three things that was were going on with Adam and Eve before, you know, after creation, before the fall. You need a good job. You need friends. You need Jesus. So we believe the purpose of business is to be a catalyst to creating those three things. And we do that through four values, honor God, serve people, be excellent, be a good person. So we had this framework. So in my quiet times, what I did, every time I read God's word, I said, is there anything I'm reading today that would fit into that framework? And so today I probably have 2,500 verbs cataloged around that kind of simple framework. Were those established when you purchased that first business? Or did those come later, those principles or values? Those were established, but I would say they didn't mean much to me. Okay. I, they were, you know, we all need values, right? We all know that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a, my best friend who walked into his business and I saw those four values hanging on the wall and they just struck me and I said, Bill, can I, can I have, can I use your values? He said, absolutely. So I just took his four values and ap- ap- actually... He took his four values from Bill Pollard at Service Master. No, nothing. They had a good source. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably not as much about the exact words as it is the living out of them. Is that right? I think you're right. I absolutely think you're right. Because there's a million principles that are biblical and solid, but it's really putting the meat behind them and the application. Okay, so... So you survived this bank transaction, right? Yeah. Uh, well, kind of what happens next in the career? So when I got the, 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 um, when the light bulb came on about ownership versus, yeah. just within a couple of weeks, I started to change our, the way we did business. Unfortunately, over the, uh, then we started buying additional companies. All right. So during the nineties, we got into this typical leverage buyout thing. We put a little down, lever them hard run them hard for four or five years and then flip them. And we made a lot of money doing that. And unfortunately, I thought, but I thought stewardship was financial generosity. So I just put the hammer down to make money to give it away. And I set these crazy giving goals and some of this kind of stuff. We had a great run and then 9-11 rolled around and black ink went to red ink, generosity ceased. And I got mad at God. I said, don't you understand? all this money I've given you, don't you understand all this stuff I've done for you? And now you're putting me through this. And it took a month or two and some help with my mentors again. But uh, I really came to understand that God wanted me to eat in with my money. And at that point in time, I said in 2001, we're going to try to do this new type of business differently one more time. And that's where, while we'd had the principles, we'd had the concept of a business is flourishing we really started to do things differently. And, um, you know, three or four years later, God introduced us to, we had a rapidly growing manufacturing company and I couldn't, in Hutchinson, Kansas, and we couldn't find enough labor for that. And um, I wound up using work release inmates from the local prison and I used them for about 30 days. I had 10 of them. I went back to the warden and said, I need 10 more. And he goes, I'm out of them. But he said, we're getting ready to vacate a bunch of workspace inside the prison that we use to work inmates. And if you can figure out how to get your business inside here, I've got, 
I got I got twelve hundred guys, and I said to myself, "This is perfect. I will. Uh, I'll get in there. I'll work these guys to death and make them pay for their sin. They'll show up on time. Uh, this is perfect." And gosh, about a captive audience, right? Captive audience, and then within about ninety days, God just convicted me that. Maybe the only difference between them and me is that they got caught. I hadn't, wow. I'm being a bit facetious. You know what you mean. You, but you know what I mean. And uh, so then God really worked on me. And so we just said, how can we create? I think God showed me that, that desert of human flourishing in a prison so that I could understand how, in some sense, how we were struggling on the outside as well. And so we got in there and we just started doing, creating economic, social, and spiritual capital for those inmates. And it took a little bit of time, it took six or nine months. But gosh, the, the, what we saw, the change in those men was astounding. So it sounds to me like there was this, I, I have this picture in my head of sort of your spiritual maturity coming along, okay? And then you're thinking that stewardship is, you know, the external giving of the process you make. I mean, maybe not by many means necessary, by, by sort of traditional means, okay? And then you get into this prison deal, and you start to see transformation inside the business with the people doing the work. So the ministry became, is it fair to say, as internal as it was external? I mean, is that was that kind of, am I following? Absolutely. You know, I think I went from a 90-10 guy to a, a 0-100 guy. But unfortunately, on the zero hundred guy, when I looked at the net income of my business, because I thought it was all God's, I thought I had to give it away. And all I was doing was, I think, earning my, I was trying to earn a good place in heaven, to be honest right. about that, you know. But when I got in there and I saw those men, they needed more than money. They yeah. needed respect and they needed Jesus. And um, it, it's interesting, you know, if you go back to this idea of economic, social, and spiritual capital, our philosophy is that we're going to lead with economic capital. We're going to give them a really good job. And the next thing we're going to do is we're going to follow on and treat them well, social capital, okay? And then guess what happens when you do that? The doors to spiritual capital fly open. And I, I think that's a parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite, the spiritual guys, came along, looked at the guy in the ditch, and said probably to themselves, if he'd just get Jesus, everything had been great. And they walked around him. Mm. But Samaritan, the, the Christ-centered entrepreneur, as I like to call him, picked the guy up and took him to the hotel. He, he paid for his economic needs first. I mean, he befriended him, evidently. We don't even know what happened spiritually between the two of them, but I'm guessing something good came out of that. Well, and by, and, and by meeting the worldly need, if you will, Right. I mean, some people, they can't hear you until you meet the world they need, but then you earn the right to be heard. Right. As, as a classic young life. But classically, relational evangelism. OK, so now have you done other deals like this where uh, you're able to help people sort of economically? I mean, it doesn't have to be in a prison, but did that sort of change your thinking of maybe the ministry to the employees and that kind of thing of other? So what do you say? Sorry, before we move away from the prison ministry, talk, uh, Pete, talk a little bit about what it took to make that happen. There had to be some roadblocks in the way of, uh, there, there had to be some tenacity involved in your generosity. Talk a little bit about 
what that was like and, and the hurdles that you had to overcome. Yes. So if you can imagine, we employ about 300 inmates today on any given day. Uh, we probably have seven, eight, nine semi-loads of raw material going in and finished goods going out of a maximum security prison. You're, you're dealing with uh, all kinds of tools that can become weapons. Um, they're, they're, you're right. It's a crazy environment. But I will tell you, it's, uh, Jeff, it's been a much, in some sense, much easier than I thought. You know, we, um, we had some of our supervisors a little uh, reticent to go into prison and, and supervise murders, okay, just to be honest about that. But I will tell you, you know, we've been doing this now for uh, 17, 18 years. And we have subsequently, we used to have some manufacturing outside of the prison. We've now moved everything inside of the prison, manufacturing-wise. And we literally have about 20 civilians who do regular manufacturing labor, and they just go inside the prison and work in there along with the inmates. Wow. We have this kind of unique, there's just this unique, culture and family that gets, that comes out of this thing. And, um, so yeah, there have been some roadblocks. I will, I have to hand it to the state of Kansas. They were one of the first states to embrace private industry in, in prisons. And so they've done that. And to make this thing work, take, it's a partnership between, uh, the business, uh, the state of Kansas and, uh, you know, the, the warden, particularly in the prison. And, but if they're all on the same page and we all understand that it's truly a win, 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 uh, amazing thing happened. You know, we pay prevailing wages. Mm. Our minimum wage is probably 12, $13 an hour. We got guys pushing 25. And so we pay prevailing wages. 25% of it comes off the top and goes back to the state for room and board. So 1.6 million will go back to the state of Kansas this year. That's amazing. Yeah. Restitution, taxes, all that stuff gets paid. But the, the huge, uh, to, to me, it's just, just incredibly uh, evident to me that they're, the dignity that these guys are receiving from actually uh, compared to, you know, sitting there just like being in misery, they actually get to use the gifts that God gave them and do something productive. That's, that's restorative. That's, that's building strength. It's building characters, building soul. It's, and it's, it just, it just seems like there's so many, uh, upside. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. I, uh, I grew up working all my life, so I thought everybody worked. We have most of the guys to come to us can't read a tape measure. And, but when you get in there and you have high expectations, oh my goodness, what that does for the human soul, for pride. Uh, just the ability to go have a good night's sleep, it is really incredible. Do you have any stories of transformation that just stand out to you? Do you have one or two? Yeah. So, oh gosh, I, we've got dozens, literally. Yeah. One particular inmate came to us, was in for life, murdered a fellow when he was young, and Louie bought into our system pretty quickly. It was interesting because we'd been in the prison maybe six months, and I really felt like we needed to start casting a vision for who they could be. So once a month, we do what we call a leadership lunch for all the inmates, and we, we talk about a leadership issue. So 
vision was the, the talk for this particular talk um, this month. So I, I said, uh, guys, the vi here's my vision for you. I want this to be the best president in the United States of America. And the way we'll have be become the best president, if you're the best people, the best residents of this facility, and my promise to you is I will do whatever it takes to help you become the best person. So we started all these programs. We have 15,000 hours of online training, and we start the seminary. We have Bible studies, all kinds of stuff here. Louis bought into that vision probably before anyone else, and he really changed the way he did his life. Long story short, he was in for life. He, uh, be based on this vision, he wrote a 40-page manual on how to be the best inmate, started teaching his fellow inmates. It gave him a, uh, they gave him a parole hearing. He was denied the first time. Three years later, he was um, uh, put, given another chance and was paroled. And that was about four or five years ago. Louis is a phenomenal artist. He started his own tattoo shop. We helped him design a business plan and he started building his own tattoo shop, which is now a, a nice six-figure business. And he's getting ready to sign a very nice contract, I think, with Netflix called Re His business is called Redemption Inc. <laughs> and so Louis redeems gang tattoos, and he tries to redeem the soul at the same time. So I think Netflix is going to have him... Uh, do this uh, reality TV show where they have gangbangers and they start this redemptive process. Wow, that's incredible. So before we leave this, I know I, I'm gonna, uh, we got to turn the corner here, but what's, what was one part of the process? There had to be some resistance through this. And I've gotten things approved through the state. Um, and when you, if you're taking tractor trailer loads of stuff into a prison, <laughs> there's... There's got to be some kind of inspectors, or <laughs> yeah, we well it, it definitely, and there is a bit of a hassle because you know each one of those boxes gets inspected when it comes off, each one of them gets inspected when they go on. They have very sensitive monitoring equipment. They can literally put a clip on a bumper and tell if there's a heartbeat in the truck. Yeah, but what we found is the culture is so strong now in that group of men that yeah. if anybody acts up or anybody starts cutting up, they they just say, hey, that is not. And so I, I literally feel safer inside prison than I do out. Oh, wow. Wow. That's crazy. That's awesome. So what if, if, if somebody, if our listener is, you know, walking the dog, running on a treadmill, they're, they're thinking about how can I be creative and in my generosity, uh, but I'm hitting road, I'm hitting some roadblocks. There had to be some times where there were some bottlenecks or roadblocks where you, you thought, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this approved or is it is this something I really am called to do? Uh, what encouragement do you have for that? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, bigger call, the bigger the calling, the greater the roadblocks. And waiting time is not wasted time. We live in a drive-up society. We want to order and have whatever we need 30 seconds later. And I think uh, it, it has taken us 18 years, you know, to get where we are. It's grinding out and helping and figuring this out. And um, I think my favorite leadership saying is this, uh, you know, connected leaders to bring vision, humility, and courage to the team effort. Yeah, the village, the vision to see what should be done, 
the humility to believe that it can only be done with the help of others and with God's help, and the courage to persevere until it is done. And I just think, pray for a bigger vision, but pray for more patience and more. And I see that in my life. Uh, you know, I would go for years at a time thinking we weren't making much progress. And then all of a sudden, when that, when the hockey stick curve went up, it really went up. And I will tell you, uh, recessions have been the best for us. We love recessions because we're able to, you know, we plan for them and, and we're able to, we've grown 20 and 30% through most of the recessions. So, and I think that's a part of being planned up and prayed up and prepared up. So have there been other businesses? I mean, you, you got this, it's not a fund, right? You just do one deal at a time with partners. What's, what's the format uh, for doing deals for you now? Yeah. So, well, we have, uh, what's existing now is we have two manufacturing companies and we own them a hundred percent within the, within our family. Uh, and we, uh, we have another manufacturing company that, uh, also does work in Zacatecas, Mexico. So we employ about 1200 folks in Zacatecas, Mexico, and we do the same. So economic, social, spiritual capital program with them as we do for inmates. Uh, we also have another company building runner river hydroelectric projects in Honduras. We do the same thing down there. So we just have this set program as to how we do business. And, uh, we just, we just initiate it in any business deal we're doing. And, uh, yeah, it works well. And it's mostly in the manufacturing business. Now, along the, along the way, you wrote a book called a high impact life. Tell us when did that happen? And what, what's kind of the uh, thesis of that book? Yes. So I'm back life was written four years ago and it's basically a trans personal transformation book. I think the key question all of us have to answer the key question is why do I exist? And we're either living for ourselves or we're living for something greater than ourselves. And if we're going to live for some, if we're going to live for ourselves, it's about pride, pleasure, and possessions. But if we're going to live for something greater than ourselves, pride turns to service to others. Uh, pleasure turns to excellence for God and possessions turns to stewardship of what God's given us. So we've taken this very simple concept of honoring God, serving people, being excellent, being good stewards for the purpose of creating economic, social, and spiritual capital. We've, we've written a second book. We've actually launched a little coaching company last year called I Am Back Business. So we'll come alongside businesses and literally help them inculcate these pro these practices of a high-impact business into their business if they want to be able to do that. Well, send us, the, send us the link, and we'll put it in the show notes, and uh, as well as the link to the book. And we're also, we'll do a bonus link of the video of you going into the prison. That was amazing. So people will just, you've got to click on that in the, in the, in the show notes. So as we, as we kind of turn the corner here and... Uh, uh, sort of wrap up the, the the main thing that we always want to ask at the end is you know it's just like the three of us are having lunch and you're telling your story and it's cool for people to kind of be listening in but you know maybe somebody's behind you on the journey and and Jeff did kind of ask that that sort of question about hey if they're struggling I'll let them hit some roadblocks but you know it's the spirit leads what what we always try to leave with a practical tip what practical tip for somebody that's trying to think of their business as a platform for generosity, what's some step they can take tomorrow in the right direction? Yeah. Um, I, I think you have to understand ownership versus stewardship first. Okay. 
And then here, here is the big thing for me. I think there are really um, three states of life. You're either poor, you're wealthy, or you're flourishing, all right? And if you're poor, you have no, no money, no friends, no Jesus. If you're wealthy, you have enough money, you have enough friends, and you K-N-O-W Jesus, all right? But if you're flourishing, you're going to be giving your, you're going to be sharing your money, you're going to be sharing your friends, and you're going to be sharing Jesus. You're going to be generous, okay? But the, what, what you have to do from moving from wealth to flourishing is you have to answer the question, how much is enough? And once you've answered that, then you have to take risk, I think, with that excess wealth. It goes back to the parable of talents. Um, the, the, the stewards that got, the servants that got the five and the two, it said they took it and immediately put it to work. They took risk with it. So the first question is you have to answer how much is enough, and then anything over that, any wealth that's in excess of what you need is capital, okay? And are you willing to take that capital and put it at risk economically, socially, and spiritually? And the times that I've done that, my life has been terrific. I think we, the world's calling us to success. Jesus is calling us to surrender, but we want to live in this thing called significance, this mushy middle of mediocrity in the middle, and where we won't just take that extra step of faith and risk and go make, try and make something happen. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of taking a prayed up, planned up, prepared up form of rest. I love that. Ask how much is enough. Uh, for me, and then ask God, what do you want me to do with the rest? And, uh, and and what I love is you're saying, take action now. Don't just give that when you're dead. I'm not sure we get credit for that. I'm pretty sure we don't, actually. And so take some risk with that that capital and, and, and share it. So, Pete, thanks so much uh, for being with us today. This has been fantastic. Great to be with you, really. I love what you're doing. Keep, keep charging. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Pete. True inspiration. Jeff Rudd, thank you for being with us as well. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's Share Us Business Owner podcast. Leave us your rating and reviews, share it with a friend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rudd. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.